0: Hello and welcome back to Clinician's Brief Partner Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Beth Mollison, and I'm so excited to talk to our guest today, Dr. Audrey Cook. Dr. Cook is a professor of small animal internal medicine at Texas A&M, and she is kind enough to join our podcast today to discuss an endocrine topic. We're going to be talking about the most common challenges and questions when it comes to managing adrenal disease. So Dr. Cook, again, thank you so much for joining us. And I want to hear about, and I want our audience to hear about your background, if you don't mind to share a little bit about your background, and I'm always curious to know, too, how you got into endocrinology and what makes you interested in that specialty.
1: Hi, Beth. I'm happy to share a bit about my background. So I'm a graduate of Edinburgh University in Scotland, and I thought it'd be really fun to have a year in America. And so I applied for internships at the end of vet school and was really lucky to match for an internship at uh, North Carolina State University. And that was where I fell in love with internal medicine because the internists, yes, they were the nerdiest, but they also were the coolest (laughs) people on the clinic floor because they were the ones who could solve the problems. So I followed that with a residency in internal medicine at UC Davis, and I was there a very long time ago. And that was when UC Davis was famous for being the seat of veterinary endocrinology. So I was mentored by the fabulous Feldman and Nelson duo. So we saw an awful lot of endocrine cases, and that really stirred up my interest in um, hormonal diseases. I followed my residency with a uh, private referral practice. I had my own practice for um, over a decade. And then somewhat out of the blue, I was invited to interview for an open position at Texas A&M. And it seemed like a, like a mad choice. But when I came to interview, <laughs> I was just fired up by the environment and the people and the chance for me to continue to grow. And so I've been there ever since I moved up the ranks. So I'm now a professor and, and section chief for internal medicine. And my days are fabulous because I get to interact with students who keep me on my toes my house officer team are very, very smart and ask me lots of challenging questions. And so I get to see patients with lots of support. I get to learn new things. And I've also been able to participate in um, veterinary CE, which is my favorite form of education because unlike the students who often surf the internet, practitioners are really, really interested (laughs) because they can see the purpose of what we're talking about. And so I've been very, very fortunate to have this new phase in my career now.
0: I love that. I love what you said about the CE. Cause I always say, if I could go back and do vet school again, how much more useful it would be now that you have this clinical knowledge. So like you said, your audience is completely different when you're doing that CE. So wonderful. Academia is lucky to have you and we're, we're happy to have your expertise here with us today when it comes to adrenal disease. Because of course, like we said, many of these adrenal endocrine diseases in general, adrenal diseases are managed by general practitioners. And you know, for the most part, we do have the tools to diagnose and treat these conditions, but that doesn't mean that they don't come without challenges and can be a headache to manage. And of course, sometimes referring these challenging cases or when you run into a hiccup you can refer them to a specialist but of course that's not always practical and not an option in every situation so we are hoping to extract some some good useful tidbits from you today that can help us overcome some of those management challenges so we want to kick today off by starting uh, with Addison's disease and for the sake of time we're going to focus on the management of these diseases as opposed to diagnosis so we get to jump right to the fun part today and I know at least for me, as soon as we bring up Addison's, I of course think we need to kind of distinguish typical versus atypical. So do you mind to give us just a little rundown when we're talking about treating Addison's, how that is different?
1: Absolutely. So so those of us who've got any gray hairs never even use the term atypical. So when I was taught about Addison's disease, we just thought in terms of what we now call typical or classic, but that was Addison's disease back in the 90s. And that is a patient where the clinical signs and the lab changes reflect the fact that this dog does not have enough cortisol or enough aldosterone. So both those hormones are missing. So a classic Addisonian, a typical Addisonian, I'm very, very sick. Cortisol is is undetectable and I don't have enough aldosterone. And so I've got all these changes on my lab work that reflect those two deficiencies. Sure. The- Atypical model um, used to be very rare. Now, in some of the more recent studies, um, certainly in the veterinary schools, almost a half of the dogs diagnosed with Addison's at at tertiary referral centers now fall into the atypical camp. And these are much more subtle patients. And so these are patients who come in and all of the signs that they're sharing with us and all of the lab work changes, which are actually pretty modest, reflect the fact that they don't have enough cortisol. They're able to keep their electrolytes in check. And so they're not azotemic. They have a normal sodium. They have a normal potassium. And so they're actually much more subtle and they're much easier to overlook. And so um, when I'm thinking about the atypical, to me, that's the dog that's going to sneak in looking like something else <laughs> with a good chance I'm going to be misled unless I think for a second, gosh, could this be an atypical Addisonian? Because the signs that we're seeing are all to do with a lack of
0: cortisol. Fascinating. And yeah, as they always say with Addison's, you know, keeping that that on your differential list is one of the hardest parts, is remembering to look for it. And then, of course, you add in that extra element of fun when, like you said, it's an atypical case. But I do want to start with our typical Addisonian. So say you have a patient that you have, of course, successfully diagnosed with Addison's disease. I want to ask you what your initial dosing protocol is. And when we talk about dosing, I know you'll go into both the prednisone and then also the zycortal, which is the DOCP or disoxycorticosterone, pivolate, injectable suspension, what that looks like and what some of the most important things we need to discuss, especially during that initial conversation with the pet owner about how we're going to be treating this and about the role that the pet owner themselves plays in disease management. Absolutely. So yes, for the for the classic
1: or typical Addisonian, we're going to have to replace both of those missing hormones. And so we're going to use the Zicortyl to replace aldosterone. And the zycortal is great because it really is a pure mimic of aldosterone. So from the body's perspective, we are simply giving them a long acting aldosterone product. So it's it's wonderful. Now the label dose for Zycortyl is 2.2 milligrams per kilogram. And this is given subcutaneously, which makes it um, very, very easy for owners to do long-term uh, Long term at home. I do think, though, many internists have the same reaction that um, most of our patients that are larger do not need to to have the full label dose. And so if I've got a small dog, I do dose them pretty close to 2.2 mg per kg. If I've got a Great Dane, um, I'm usually getting much closer to about 1.5 mg per kg in a very, very large dog. And so I'll kind of scale things down as I go through. Okay. When I'm thinking about the prednisone, everybody always wrestles with what is physiologic prednisone? And, <laughs> and I define physiologic prednisone as actually less than 0.1 MIGs per kg. And so to make the math easier, I say physiologic is basically 0.1 MIGs per kg per day. So that's kind of the, the dose I sketch out for my patient. Again, though, if I'm dealing with a Great Dane who's got Addison's disease, then physiologic pred for a Great Dane is, is about half of that. So again, I'm going to have my small dog model and then I'm going to kind of scale things differently if I'm dealing with a, with a giant breed. Sure. When I first diagnosed the dog as having Addison's though, they're sick, they're in the hospital and a dog with normal adrenal function who is in the hospital sitting in our ICU with IV catheters and machines beeping, those patients put out lots of extra cortisol to get through the stress of being in the hospital. So I've defined what physiologic at home, happy day requirements are, my Mm 0.1 mg per kg. But if I've got an adenosine in the hospital, whoa, all bets are off. They need five, maybe even 10 times that amount. So when I first start dosing them on the prednisone, I'm going to give them about five times physiologic, and then I'm gonna get them squared off and happy and eating, and I'm going to taper them down from that, usually about half a mg per kg once a day of prednisone, down to my target of 0.1 mgs per kig once a day when they're home and happy. Take about two weeks to make that transition, and then if 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 I find that they're a little bit cushingoid on the 0.1, so mom says, doing great, but goodness, snatching food from the baby. I will say, <laughs> okay, that is more bread than this individual needs, and I will just eke it down a little bit until I find that the sweet spot. Owners though, do play an enormous part in the management of an Addisonian patient. And so clients need to understand that if they're anticipating something stressful happening with their dog, and this could be physically stressful, like I'm having knee surgery, or psychologically stressful, like it's Christmas, Grandma comes. Grandma makes me nervous. Um, we need to increase those um, the prednisone plan for those stressful times. And so a mild stress, like lots of visitors, I'll say, gosh, double the pred. If they're mm-hmm. having a big surgery, I will say maybe three or four times the prednisone. Okay because we do need to make those, um, those adjustments. And so I think making sure we've got really good lines of communication with the owners and so they understand what the purpose of the drugs are. The zycortal is not going to be impacted by stress, but the prednisone needs will be impacted by the stress. And then going back to the zicortyl, when we've picked our, our, our dose, and again, 2.2 for a wee one and then you know, 1.25, 1.5 if you're getting big, mgs per kg. That dose is given as a depot injection and it's going to last about 25 days at least. And so when we when we start the zycortal, there's two questions I want to know. One question was: did I pick the right dose? And so I'm going mm-hmm. to get them back in about day 10 to 12 to check those electrolytes to make sure that the dose I gave was in the sweet spot. Wasn't too little, wasn't too much. Too much is rare, but it can happen. And Mm -hmm. then I get them back in um, at about day 25 to day 28 to make sure that it lasted as long as I wanted. And again, I'm going to check my electrolytes to verify effective duration of effect. And then if I'm not happy, I usually make a little jump up by about 10 to 20% or a decrease by 10 to 20% if I'm not happy with the dose. If it's cruising along on duration, um, I will personally try and stretch the zycortal out to go every... 30 days or so just so mm-hmm. it becomes for this dog it's the first of the month and you get your shot or it's whatever your assigned date is it just makes it an awful lot easier for clients
0: to remember that's really smart i had never even thought about that perk of stretching it out but so much good practical advice there and so you know now that we've initiated treatment and say you have found that perfect dose perfect dosing interval um what is the protocol at that point as far as, as rechecks? I know ha- I have a few stable Addisonians, um at my office, and I always just am kind of, you know, fingers crossed every month that nothing has changed. But what are your long-term protocols as far as rechecks and blood work, and what are your recommendations?
1: That's a great question. I think these patients probably should be checked up a couple of times a year um, for a how are we doing making sure that appetite is good, body condition score is good, and that the patient isn't showing signs of too much prednisone. Um, and so I'm usually more worried about they're getting a bit more pred than they need. If they're, um, So I'll t- take a very close look at their hair coat, make sure they're not getting at all
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, chubby. So make sure I'm, I'm looking good as far as how my prednisone is doing. And then every six months, I would do routine blood work to take a peek at um, electrolytes. If you're on target with your plan, then your entire blood work should be perfectly normal. Alkfos activity should be within the reference range and electrolytes should be, should be perfect. One thing I would remind everybody, because occasionally we see patients where I think vets got a little bit confused, is you never need to repeat the ACTH DIM test. Once you are spontaneously Addisonian, you are Stuck with it; it is not going to go away, and so there is there is no need to ever redo the stim because it's always going to be flatline to flatline. So uh, that is something I did
0: want to share with our audience today. Yes, definitely good to point that out. And l- once once you are feel like you're at a stable point with these patients, do you ever have owners administer the zycordal at home? Do you think that's safe for them to do? Have you found success there, or do you feel like you like seeing them every month?
1: I actually think it's a uh, It's very realistic to have owners give this injection at home. And so that's, to me, one of the nice advantages of the Zycortal is its licensed for sub-Q use. Previously, we were restricted to an injectable product that required IM administration. And I think for the average client, that's a step too far. But sub-Q administration is very, very straightforward. And so we've got a few Addisonian owners who simply feel better bringing their dog in and we're happy mm-hmm. to do the injection for them. But um, as a general rule, I say it's going to be much simpler for you. It's going to be less expensive for you if you simply learn to do this at home. And so we'll do the usual practice injections with saline. And then as soon as mm-hmm. clients see how easy it is to do <laughs> um I would say nine times out of ten, clients look at me and say, "That's that's all you have to do." I'm like, "That's all you have to do. Um, give them a scratch their head and give them a treat, and it's not going to be a problem." And I do think that's a huge advantage as far as making sure that clients stay on track and we get really, really good compliance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Happy to save that office visit fee. I'm sure for the most part. And can pets? that are on these physiologic doses of pred, like you mentioned, once you've tapered them down and you're not having to, you know, they're not in the hospital anymore. What about long-term use of NSAIDs? So you have an Addisonian that's an older patient that has developed arthritis. What is your take on how to control situations like that despite the, the prednisone use?
1: That is a really, really difficult issue. Um, I get asked that question a lot and I always have to say <laughs> I don't really know. Instinctively, I think if you are on physiologic prednisone, I can see no reason why you shouldn't be able to safely tolerate a non-steroidal. Having said that, when I'm faced with an Addisonian who is getting old dog arthritis, I still have some some anxiety about... These two drugs should never be on the same same patient's <laughs> right. medical record side by side. And so, so I must admit, I, I personally try and avoid doing that as best I can. So I will think about other ways to control chronic arth- arthritic pain or, or other kind of painful disorders. So I'll think about tramadol. I'll think about gabapentin. I'll think about physical therapy. If I had a patient where all those things were ineffective and they still needed significant analgesic, then I would think potentially about using something in the acetaminophen family because that's um, going to be potentially a lot safer. It it is difficult. And I have had some patients where I have put them on um, standard doses of... NSAIDs that are licensed for chronic use whilst being on physiologic doses of prednisone and have not had any problems. But I must admit, I try and circumvent that situation <laughs> as best I can.
0: Yeah, like you said, there's something about seeing those those two <laughs> drug names next to each other on the chart that just <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> keeps us all up at night. It really um, does. <laughs> and rewinding just a little bit, I want to touch one more question on atypical Adazonians. And I feel like I've been taught maybe it's a bit of fear-mongering, but I just feel like I have it in my head that all of these dogs or a good portion of these dogs will go on to become full-blown Addisonians and that once they're diagnosed with atypical Addisons that we really need to watch them like a hawk because they're always on the verge of tipping into full-blown Addison's disease. Can you weigh in on that as far as is that true? What should their treatment and monitoring protocols look like when compared to a typical Addisonian?
1: I used to share your anxiety about when is the other shoe going to drop <laughs> um, and very, very worried about the fact that I might have seen an atypical for a recheck and said everything is fine and then two weeks later, why could it not then become a full-blown Addisonian? But actually, it does turn out that it's relatively uncommon for those dogs to make that switch. There was a paper that came out recently that looked at 35 dogs with atypical Addisons and only 14% of those dogs went on to develop electrolyte changes, which was very reassuring and most of those happen within the first six months. Okay. And so, so I do think if you get an atypical, um, my feeling now is I'm going to see you back maybe every six weeks or so to make sure you're doing okay and mm-hmm. check your electrolytes. And if you get to six months and nothing has happened, I'm going to back off my monitoring. I would make sure that the owner understands, though, that first hint of he's not feeling as good today as he felt yesterday. Mm-hmm. Take this very, very seriously. We do know from experimental studies, even if you basically, Remove the adrenal glands from a dog and they are completely aldosterone deficient. You don't eat a hearty dinner and then are found dead in your bed the next morning. That's not what happens. And so you've got a few days as those electrolytes start to drift and you start to become dehydrated and start to manifest signs of I really don't feel well before you hit a crisis point. So I have become much less anxious generally over the years, recognizing that even if something does happen, it's not an overnight emergency. It's a come sure. in and you're not doing well i've got time to turn this thing around and then this recent study i found very reassuring less than 14 percent, and mostly in the first six months and so that was very very positive news i think from that perspective
0: Yes, that is reassuring. Very good insights there. And so once we have an Addisonian that is well controlled, like like we said, back to the well controlled Addisonian, what should we have, what should we and the owners be looking out for that would indicate a problem? Like what are the most likely hiccups that you see when you're just going along doing fine and then you see issues pop up? What do those issues tend to be? I think if the if the, if the
1: Addison's is generally well-controlled, um, I don't tend to anticipate many problems. I do think we need to be very proactive about stressful events where cortisol requirements are going to increase. We do know, though, that there's an association between one endocrine system turning off, i.e. Addison's, and other endocrine systems turning off, such as becoming a diabetic or quite commonly, at least in my experience, becoming hypothyroid. And so I think these patients are at risk for other adrenal systems Collapsing on us, and so I, I will be particularly attentive to the Addisonian, where um, they're gaining weight and their hair coat shifting. And you might think, "Gosh, are they on too much pred?" I would also mm-hmm. say hmm, they might be, but gosh, could they now be coming hypothyroid? And so I do keep those other endocrine disorders kind of on my my radar screen. But otherwise, for a spontaneous Addisonian, it's going to be for life. But with effective care, they should go out and live their entirely normal lifespan. Really, as a very very positive outcome.
0: I love it. Other than, of course, the like you said, predisposition to other endocrine disorders as, as if one wasn't enough, but good, good <laughs> tips to look out for. Um, and just as a specialist, I always love to pick specialist brain. I always feel like there must be things you want to shout from the rooftops to us as general practitioners um, that you see kind of common mistakes. So anything else you want to get off your chest from a referral viewpoint as far as um, common mistakes or common challenges that you see us having in general practice?
1: Well, thank you for giving me a second to to get on a soapbox, because there are a couple of things that um, that, that I do sometimes think, oh, I wish somebody had called and talked to me first. The first, <laughs> the first thing I would say is, because Addison's is a lifetime diagnosis, it is incredibly important to establish that diagnosis beyond a shadow of a doubt at the start. And so you have got to do an ACTH DIM test. You have got to do that. So we have something in the medical record that says, without a doubt, this dog has adrenal glands that are not working. I can, can understand in circumstances where a patient comes in an Addisonian crisis, and it's we're all focused on getting the dog through this, and maybe we haven't got cortrosin sitting in our pharmacy in handy. That's completely understandable. Under those circumstances, save the dog, scoop it up, treat it as necessary, including giving it whatever medications it needs to be managed with this Mm -hmm. crisis. And as soon as you can, go ahead and get an ACTH stim test done. It's very easy, particularly um, for someone like me with a passion for this, that if someone does a stim test day three after giving the dog, say, dexamethasone and zicortyl or even prednisone and zicortyl, I can still look at the ACTH stim test results and figure out what's going on. And I can still say, yep, you have proven incontrovertibly that your your patient has Addison's. And so taking that time to make sure that we get that diagnosis within the first two or three days is key. Six weeks into this, we can't make that diagnosis. We can't because six weeks on on exogenous glucocorticoids is going to make anybody have an abnormal adrenal response. And so Mm -hmm. we have a pretty short window for proving this. And so I always urge people, it's worth the investment so that shadow of doubt on a lifetime diagnosis is removed. The other mistake I see is um, some vets will try and get the dog onto every other day prednisone, or even sometimes off of prednisone, which to me makes no sense. Yes, you can keep an Addisonian dog alive on DOCP alone. They're alive but they can't thrive because you need cortisol to be happy and DOCP Mm -hmm. does not hit the glucocorticoid receptor and so these dogs are walking around living half a life and so don't try and get them off the pred and don't try and get them onto every other day because every day they need cortisol and that lets them feel good the, the the lights are turned on the sun is shining versus some of these dogs where they've been weaned down to every 3 days i've had some clients say we've weaned them down to twice a week pred and and we've got away with it and i think oh gosh that's that's half a life spent in a in a, in a dark funk versus every day being filled with joy and so find that daily prednisone dose that physiologic so 0.1 mg per kg or less once a day And stick to that. Don't try and wean
0: them down from that because, yes, they're alive, but they're not happy. Great advice. Okay, Dr. Cook. So now let's say we're in the opposite boat here. Our adrenals are working overtime and we have a dog who we've successfully navigated through the diagnostic challenges of hyperadrenocorticism. And we're ready to start this pet on veteral capsules or trilostein. And the place I want to start with is this. How critical is it to know if you're dealing with um, adrenal dependent versus pituitary dependent? I know this is a loaded question, but can you, you touch on how it will affect our management and how hard we should kind of push for the definitive differentiation there?
1: So vetril, the trilostane, is very effective for both forms of spontaneous hypercortisolism. And so it will take away the clinical signs of Cushing's in a dog who's got pituitary dependent disease or a functional adrenal tumor. From my perspective, it's important to know if we have an adrenal tumor, if I have an owner and a patient where removing that adrenal gland is an option. Now, adrenalectomies are a big deal. And so if somebody realistically hasn't got many thousands of dollars to pursue adrenal Mm -hmm. surgery, or if a dog has heart disease or some other comorbid condition that makes me think, gosh, would I put this dog with other problems through an aggressive surgery? If there's no money or the patient's not a good surgical candidate, then it is a little bit academic. It it might infa- impact prognosis. And so if you have a very aggressive adrenal carcinoma, your longevity is going to be poor because that tumor is going to try and eat into adjacent structures and is going to metastasize. So prognostically, knowing you had that, have one of those conversations about, make sure this year's photo with, with Santa is a good photo. Yes, there's prognostic information <laughs> to be to be learned. Um, to be shared with the owner. But if um, if I'm just trying to make the dog a normal happy pet, then there's really no need to differentiate the two. So it does depend a little bit on that individual patient and on the client's specific circumstances. trialistane though, it is so very effective for both. It's much more effective actually for dogs with adrenal tumors than than mitotane or lysogen used to be. So actually, it's been a, a huge benefit for us to have that drug available for patients with adrenal tumors where surgery is not an option. By, because of how the drug works, it's a it's a reversible enzyme inhibitor, and so it actually it doesn't stay with us. It it's it's given the enzymes in the adrenal gland can't make the cortisol and then the drug wears off and the enzymes are able to start to refunction. The biggest side effect that we see with triamcinolone is temporary hypocortisolism where the dose is a bit high and your cortisol concentrations are a bit low and you feel a bit blah. We, we take you off of it and you're back to where you were. Or in a small subset of patients, we do see adrenal gland necrosis. Um, and those patients may become permanently Addisonian. And for me, that's actually a little bit of a happy dance because it's cheaper and easier <laughs> to have a patient who's Addisonian than to have a patient who's taking Vero. And so when that does happen, I say to owners, this is gonna be very, very much easier for us and easier on your pocketbook. And so for me, that is um, that is um not a sad outcome at all.
0: I love that optimistic outlook there. Can't go wrong. Um And so you want think about after diagnosis and you're starting this patient on treatment, you know, obviously I feel like Cushing's is a, a big disease for us as veterinarians to wrap our heads around. But then of course we have the challenge of client communication and what that looks like. So I'm curious from your perspective, what should owners really know about starting treatment and managing this condition? You know, what signs should they look out for? Of course, you mentioned potential iatrogenic addisons. Um, you know, what does that conversation look like to you?
1: I do think we need to take time to make sure that owners have a really good understanding of what we're doing. And so we're never treating the underlying disease when we're giving a patient trial a stay in What we're doing is we're taking away the clinical signs that the owner was dealing with. And so we are converting the patient back to being a happy and functional pet. The underlying disorder, whether it's an adrenal tumor or a pituitary tumor, is, is, is still present. The, that that disease state is still ongoing what we're doing is blocking the signs and so I think clients do need to understand that. I think they also need to know a little bit about how the drug works as far as where we, we tell the adrenal glands while the drug is on board to stop making cortisol in huge amounts to make just the right amount of cortisol and so that way clients understand that what we're trying to do is find that that perfect spot that um, kind of Goldilocks spot where you've got just the right amount of cortisol to feel happy. You've not got so much that you're eating everything and urinating in the house, and we've not suppressed you so much that it's a gray day. And so we're gonna find that sweet spot. And it's not like picking a drug like amoxicillin for a bladder infection. We have to find the dose of trial, of vetril that works for this individual. So I think if clients understand that we're finding the sweet spot for your particular pet, then they understand the need for us to do some rechecks and some dose adjustments. I also think they need to understand that if they have any worries, they can stop the trial stain This is not like abandoning your antibiotics and your infection becoming resistant. If you think <laughs> your dog didn't look good, didn't feel good, looks at you cross-eyed this morning, left its breakfast, <laughs> stop the trial stain and give me a call. Perfectly safe. We've lost no ground. I think it's really important that they understand that. And then I like to try and set expectations about what we expect to get better quickly, like the thirst and the hunger, and what's going to take a very long time, like the hair. And so sometimes clients say, he doesn't look any better. And I'll think, your dog is now no longer snatching food from your children, is sleeping through the night, its its pot belly is abating. Yeah, the hair, st- <laughs> the hair still looks bad, but it can take <laughs> six months to get the hair to reverse. And if they've got calcinosis cutis, I've had patients where that has taken incredibly long periods of time and sometimes actually gets worse because that calcium erupts out of the skin before they get better. So, yes, I do think we need to we need to set good expectations. When I start my patients, based on studies where they looked at how much it took to get good control, most of those studies found that the average dog was well-controlled for its um, Cushing's disease on about 3 to 4 mg per kg per day. Of so I usually start the dog at about 2 to 3 mg per kg per day, adjusting down generally if I'm getting close to um, uh, uh, one or the other, locked into the capsule sizes. I'll tend to round down if I'm locked into the capsule sizes um, and then I am prepared to step it upwards. So I start with enough of a dose to see a change without being too cautious but tell the owner again I'm going to have to find the sweet spot for your pet and, and it might take us a little bit of time to do that. The only time that I always start twice daily is if I have a diabetic because I think it's really helpful for them to have the daytime events from an endocrine perspective be as similar as possible to the nighttime events. So mm-hmm. insulin and vetril in the morning, insulin and vetril in the evening. If it's not a diabetic, I usually default to once daily because for most of our owners, they're a bit more
0: compliant with once daily meds than twice daily meds. I love that. I'm going to steal your line about the amox, you know, this isn't amoxicillin, <laughs> we're going to need yes. to find the right dose. I feel like that's something that owners can can understand and put into the context that they're familiar with. So lots of good good communication advice there. And when we are, you know, when we're monitoring them, when the um, pet owners are monitoring, what secondary conditions should we be looking out for? And what sort of monitoring protocol does this pet need? And how how exactly do we base our dose adjustments as we're going along?
1: That's a, that's a big question, so um, I'm going to have to <laughs> take a big, 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 deep breath in to answer that. So so first off, when I think about a Cushing or a dog, I do think in terms of the fact that they often have a bunch of other stuff going on that's connected to the Cushing's, but isn't going to necessarily fix itself, even as I start to bring those cortisol concentrations down. And so if they've got um, pyoderma, I need to be addressing that. If they've got calcinosis cutis, I need to be addressing that. If they're hypertense, I need to be addressing that. Now, the hypertension may become much easier to manage and may drift away as I control their hypercortisolemia, but I don't want to be casual about sitting on a hypertense patient. And going along with that, many of these dogs are also proteinuric. And it's always hard to know how responsive that's going to be to treatment, but many of the dogs with Cushing's actually have glomerular sclerosis. And so the proteinuria is often persistent, even if we successfully treated their, their Cushings. And so the proteinuria is another concern. I would not want to start specific drugs for proteinuria at the same time I started trilostane because the things that we use for proteinuria, like the angiotensin receptor blockers and the, um, the ACE inhibitors, those potentially could exacerbate a tendency to drive the potassium too high. So I wouldn't want to start those at the same time, but I'm going to get the, I'm going to check the proteinuria Think about things I can do, maybe adjust the diet. Maybe I think about using, um, say, a clopidogrel if I'm worried about a a thrombotic risk. But I'm going to keep an eye on the proteinuria and then decide when I'm going to treat that based on when I've got the veteral dose figured out and things safely on board. So sometimes I've got my background stuff that I need to worry about and kind of keep my eye on while I'm handling my my Cushingoid patients. But I'm monitoring them from the perspective of where am I at with my veteral dose? Is this veteral dose on target? by far the most useful thing we can do is look at the patient and talk to the owner. And so I actually have a, a little questionnaire that I give the owner that um, I took from um, a paper that came out of Glasgow a few years ago. And it, it actually lets me give a, a Cushing score. And so when the client comes in with their dog, they fill out the same questionnaire each time. And we ask them, how are things been doing since we last saw you? We can actually get a score for is the crittings fairly well controlled or do we have concerns about possible overdose? So does the owner report lethargy or, or skipping meals, something that would flag me to this dog has something else serious going on or is it getting more trial of stain than it needs? And so I do think that time spent getting a history is an incredibly important part of monitoring because I'm going to make decisions about what I need to do on this recheck visit and then decisions about dose adjustment and factoring that information in. So on the average, hey, come in, how are you doing? Good questions. And I do think something in writing is easier because that way you've not forgotten to ask a question. And if the client's wanting to do a drop off, they're often better at filling something out really quickly and leaving it with you versus being put into a room and actually interviewed. Then I'm gonna take a really good look at the dog. one of my rules of thumb is if I walk down the hallway and somebody in orthopedics was walking this dog to the waist scale, would I stop them and say, "Whoa, your patient's got cushions," <laughs> or would I, would I walk right by and say, "Nice looking patient"? And so, so I kind of do the <laughs> how cushioning does this dog look scale. And so, um, I'll keep a close eye on those physical exam changes. Now, the hair coat is going to take a while to shift, but I should have a sense that if the the pot belly maybe is getting a bit a bit better and the legs are maybe better muscled, so I should have a sense for what. Dress I'm going and I think taking photographs of patients is very helpful and I encourage owners to do that as well but we'll take pictures of our Cushingoid patients so we can we can track their progress and sometimes that is very very helpful to say the hair still looks awful but my goodness compared to three months ago it's positively beautiful and so I think I think I think capturing those things is helpful if a client comes in and says Dr. Cook you are wonderful, he is back to normal, and I look at the patient and think, wow, you don't look cushingoid to me. This is a winner. Then I don't think there's an awful lot of need for us, in all honesty, to do an ACTH dim test on that patient. There's a lot of controversy about how best to monitor these. And if you had... Four internists on this podcast, we'd probably be at 50 cuffs picking the best plan because there's so much um, discussion about it. But we do have very good evidence that the ACTH stim test in a dog who's clinically well with a happy owner probably doesn't give us much benefit for the cost of doing that test. Mm-hmm. If I've got a happy owner, happy pet, and I'm thinking, my only worry now is, are you slightly overdosed? Am I, am I making you walk around all day with cortisols that are a bit lower than you'd like? So you're 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 not having a a happy day. I'll sometimes mm-hmm. just do a baseline cortisol, either a pre dose, a pre stain so a first thing in the morning, fly by, draw blood, or about three or four hours after you got your trial stain and I'll see what the numbers are looking then. Then there's some published reference guidelines for roughly where you should be on your pre stain or your three to four hours post stain As long as those numbers are on target, which is generally over about one and a half, I'll say, you know what. I need to change absolutely nothing. If a patient comes in Cushingoids, then um, I'll sometimes just do a baseline. It'll usually be high and then I'll increase the dose. Mm -hmm. Anytime a patient comes in though that is ill, if there is a whiff of illness, so either my questionnaire flags (laughs) a few few potential worries or the owner says, I'm not happy about how he's doing. Then I say, okay, we need to do chemistry panel at least, including electrolytes to make sure that our sodium potassium on track and we need to do an ACTH stim test to see where you are. I don't want to get tunnel visioned and always blame trilistin if a Cushingoid dog on vetril isn't feeling well. And so I want to keep an open mind as well that these dogs can get pancreatitis, these dogs can get cancer. There's all kinds of other things. These are old dogs that can make them not feel well. But as soon as they're not feeling well, chemistry panel. I will usually do a stim test to make sure I've understood if the trial of stain is a component. And then I keep my mind open to the fact that all kinds of old dog things can hit these patients as well. And again, I think it's so important that we make sure clients understand that they need to, to let us know if they've got concerns about their dog, either concerns because the Cushing's is drifting upwards and the dog is becoming hungrier and panting and drinking more, or concerns that the dog is off unwell down they need to they need to 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 get just get in touch just call us have a conversation we can make an appointment to do a recheck but they need to make sure that um this is not something to I'll give it a week or two and see what happens
0: this is something where they need to reach out fairly promptly so many good tips there dr cook i especially love your um i love the idea of a questionnaire it never like i was in the clinic this week it never ceases to shock me how difficult it is to get a good history from (laughs) some pet owners so i love your idea of keeping them on target forcing responses to specific answers so i love that i love your idea of taking pictures all those are, are great things we can do in practice um another question for you is From your perspective as a specialist, what are signs that we need to be seeking referral for a patient or advice from an internist? Because I know, of course, like, say I have a pet with multiple endocrine diseases. I love sending those to you guys. But are there other indications where you're like, oh, I wish they would have sent this to me sooner?
1: I think, I do think that the diabetic Cushingoid is a challenge. And so that's a patient that I would say that's probably worth referring that patient in. Um, it's not very common for me to have a Cushingoid dog who becomes diabetic, but it's um, much more likely I have a diabetic and I think, gosh, you've got Cushing's, or you walk in with newly diagnosed diabetes and you are overtly Cushingoid. I think those patients are challenging. And so that would be an animal that I would probably say it's worth reaching out to an internist to get some advice because things can change very fast as far as their insulin needs. Um, it can be, you have to kind of nuance what you're doing. You have you have to be much more proactive in a diabetic Cushingoid. So that is one I probably would say um, you're best off if you can getting some help with those cases. The other one I, I, I think is worthwhile and reaching out for help is a patient who's Cushingoid who has neurologic signs at all. So, so any kind of behavioral changes, um, becoming aggressive, becoming passive, visual changes, walking into walls, getting confused. Could be an old dog with cataracts. You could maybe explain some of those things. Also, could be a patient who's got a macro adenoma. Um, and those patients can be very problematic because often they don't eat they can actually get sicker when you start to treat them because as we drop their cortisol concentrations, they tend to get more edema around their macroadenoma. And so often the story is they weren't that neurologic. I started treating their Cushing's. I did a really good job treating their Cushing's, and now they're neurologic. And so those patients can be very, very difficult, and referrals very helpful for those. Another time I would say it's worthwhile reaching out for help is if you have a patient where you've got it on a hefty dose of, of, of veteral and you're not making effective headway. Um, and it's unusual for us to have uh, patients where veteral simply doesn't seem to be a good choice, but I've had a couple of dogs where I felt like I was just practically bathing them in trilostane and I was not <laughs> making headway with their hyperadrenocorticism. And those are patients that we may have to consider going for, for, for Mitotane. And I think unless you've got lots of experience using Mitotane and anybody who's under the age of about 60 does not, um, <laughs> I think those patients probably need to be referred in because Mitotain is, is, to my mind, that that takes Cushing's to a whole new kind of fighter pilot level, and you need a person who's got a <laughs> lot of comfort and experience because you have to you have to nuance that. Um, so those would be the circumstances where I would say don't hesitate to reach out. Also, if you're getting very very conflicting test results and you're getting frustrated, then always reach out and get some help because sometimes an internist can shed some light on on test results that can be very very helpful.
0: Wonderful. And Dr. Cook, I want to offer you your soapbox back one last time here before we wrap up our Cushing segment and ask you when it comes to Cushing's disease, what are some of the, the common mistakes or ways you think you could could help us maybe do a more effective job in general practice?
1: Fabulous. Well, the first thing would be um, chasing the diagnosis in dogs who don't have any clinical signs of Cushing's but who have lab work changes that suggest Cushing's, so classically the increased outfoss activity. That's probably my mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. biggest thing I want to say <laughs> is, and, and this is a quote from, from Edward Feldman, who would say all the time when I was a resident, and I didn't really grasp the brilliance of it, which is, Cushing's is an exam room diagnosis. You will hear something from an owner, a complaint, thirst, up in the night, stealing food, panting, or you will see something, you walk in the room and go, whoa, when did his hair start to look like this? <laughs> Cushing's. So it is. It is, the idea of Cushing's should pop into your brain because of something the owner says or something you see. If Cushing's pops in your brain because you looked at lab work and saw a high ALK-fos and a high cholesterol, don't start chasing it. So that's that, <laughs> that, that. Suggestion number one is is don't chase it in the dog who hasn't got it because you're going to get into a into a mess. The second um, soapbox point would be um, delaying treatment because you're fearful of causing problems. Trilustine to me has transformed Cushing's from being something that did require some expertise and some and some familiarity with challenging drugs to being something general practitioners should be much more willing to treat. And so you get a Cushingoid dog, you've got, you've got an owner complaint and you've seen something, you've proven the diagnosis, don't delay treatment because they end up getting more debilitated as, as things go by and there's, there's no advantage in delaying treatment at all. Do not be frightened of adrenal necrosis one of the wonderful things about triastine is it doesn't cause kidney injury or liver failure or pulmonary fibrosis. If we get a complication, a long-standing complication, triastine has actually taken out the problem organ, which to me is such a beautiful piece of irony. We should not be frightened right. of it All it does is make you, you Addisonian, it? and that's even better than Cushing's. And so, don't, <laughs> don't don't delay for fear. And then the third thing I would say is when we're monitoring our patients don't focus too much on cortisol results really focus on the patient so back to this idea about the history and the physical and does the dog look Cushingoid to you and is the owner happy don't be frustrated because your your cortisols are, are not on on target you're not managing to to match the packet insert rules if you've got a happy dog and a happy owner you've actually met met the goals that we should have and so really focus on the on the patient rather than the cortisol levels that would be my third good piece of advice I
0: love that exam room disease. That's that's a a good tip there. So Dr. Cook, you have made it to our final segment here that we call Keep It Brief, and you don't necessarily need to keep it brief, but where we go slightly off topic and just ask you a curiosity question. So keeping in the realm of endocrine diseases, of course, I wanted to ask you, if you were granted the magic power to make one endocrine disease disappear, what would it be? Dog, cat, whatever disease you choose. If I had that power,
1: it would be feline diabetes. Diabetes mellitus in the cat is is heartbreaking, not because we can't treat the disease we can, but because owners often become so frustrated and disheartened. And so if you look at some of the the outcome reports for cats with diabetes, you're actually better off being diagnosed with lymphoma. And that's because so many cats are euthanized so quickly because owners are so overwhelmed by the management. Now, there is... Tremendous excitement on the horizon because there's a new drug class coming out for feline diabetes, which I think is going to be transformative. And so, I, I, I as even I think about feline diabetes, the clouds to me are starting to lift. I think we have new things <laughs> on the horizon that are going to make this disease an awful lot easier than it was. But, but to me, that's been one of the saddest diseases because it's so treatable. In theory, it's just not been treatable in practice because the owner carries such a
0: significant burden of work that's really interesting i feel like this should serve as a teaser for maybe a future podcast we can do (laughs) together Dr. Cook. I love it. Well, to wrap up, thank you so much for being here. I know I have learned a ton and honestly feel much more confident with uh, jumping over some of those hurdles and management challenges that I know we all face in practice. So we can't thank you enough for being here to share all those expert tips with us today. And of course, a big thank you to Dekra for being our partner in adrenal disease and for making this conversation possible today. And of course, thank you to our audience for being here with us today as well. Thank you all very much. Thanks again to our sponsor and to today's guests for joining us. And thanks to you all for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We would appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can also listen to podcasts on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. And you can also drop us a line at podcasts at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief Partner Podcast is a brief media production. Federal important safety information. As with all drugs, side effects may occur. In field studies and post-approval experience, the most common side effects reported were anorexia, lethargy or depression, vomiting, diarrhea, elevated liver enzymes, elevated potassium with or without decreased sodium, elevated BUN, decreased sodium-potassium ratio, hypoadrenocorticism, weakness, elevated creatinine, shaking, and renal insufficiency. In some cases, death has been reported as an outcome of these adverse events. Federal capsules are not for use in dogs with primary hepatic or renal disease or in pregnant dogs. Refer to the prescribing information for complete details. Psychordal important safety information. As with all drugs, side effects may occur. In field studies and post-approval experience, the most common side effects reported were polyuria, polydipsia, depression or lethargy, pain on injection, weight gain, inappropriate urination, alopecia, decreased appetite or anorexia, panting, vomiting, diarrhea, shaking or trembling, polyphagia, urinary tract infection, urinary tract incontinence, anaphylaxis, anemia, restlessness, and collapse. Death or euthanasia has been associated with some of the adverse events listed above. Psychoidal suspension should be used with caution in dogs with congestive heart disease, edema, severe renal disease, or primary hepatic failure. Dogs presenting an Addisonian crisis must be rehydrated with appropriate intravenous therapy before starting treatment with psychoidal suspension. Refer to the prescribing information for complete details or visit www.decra-us.com.